the character of Jacob, the younger of Isaac and Rebecca's twin boys by a few minutes, hardly comes across as warm or attractive. He was willful, ambitious, scheming, devious. Jacob, we're told, had smooth skin, while his brother Esau had hairy skin, but his skin wasn't the only thing that was smooth about Jacob. Instead, as you've remembered, he firmly secured a favoured place in his mother's affections. He cleverly plotted with her in securing both Esau's birthright and Isaac's blessing. He'd made a fool out of his older brother, and perhaps more seriously still, had made a fool out of his elderly, disabled father, and all in a mad dash for that number one slot. As a contender on The Apprentice, Jacob may well have shown many of the qualities that would catch the eye of a Lord Sugar. He certainly proved himself to be an extraordinarily able businessman when it came to shepherding Laban's flocks, as you will discover next week. But as a future patriarch, a man of God, Jacob seems to have had no redeeming features whatsoever. So what are you looking for in a future Bishop of Dorking? I was asked earlier this week, And I guess my questioner would have been more than surprised if I'd answered, I'm looking for someone who's willful, ambitious, scheming, devious, and smooth. (laughs) Jacob's twin Esau was a hairy man, but he could also be a very angry man. And it was his sheer bafflement at rage at having been tricked by his younger brother, and not for the first time, that forms the background of our reading this morning. In Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, the young lad left home, having claimed an inheritance that wasn't rightfully his, at least not at that point, and leaving behind him a distraught father and a very angry older brother. In the story of prodigal Jacob, just the same was true, leaving behind him a distraught father and a very angry older brother. But this wasn't some hopeful, foolish young man seeking his fame and fortune in the big city. This was a desperate young man fleeing for his life. From his family home in Beersheba, Jacob swiftly made his way to Haran. That was the birthplace of his grandfather, Abraham. And having journeyed a little further on, he settled down for the night, frightened, I guess, disconsolate, maybe even a little bit ashamed, and with only a stone for a pillow. And then he had this dream, an extraordinary dream, vivid dream, of a ladder or a stairway that stretched from earth to heaven. It was entirely unexpected. It came completely out of the blue, and above all, it was wholly undeserved. Because here, willful, ambitious, scheming, devious, smooth Jacob was granted the most glorious of divine visions as heaven metaphorically pulled all the stops out. There were angels ascending and descending the staircase. There was the voice of God himself speaking words not of condemnation, but words of grace. And to cap it all, there was one of the most extraordinary set of promises ever given to a human being, a powerful renewal of the promises made to Jacob's dad, Isaac, and to his grandpa, Abraham. Jacob will be given a mighty inheritance. That was the first of the promises, an inheritance spreading out to north and south, to east and west. All the nations on earth will be blessed through him and his family. That was promise number two. 
And hot on its heels came the third and final promise that God would be with him and would protect him and would one day bring him safely back to this place. There was absolutely no word of judgment or criticism here at all, unless it lay in the simple words, I am the Lord, with their implications that Jacob's own scheming, making himself Lord of his own life, were both unwise and unnecessary. There was no reference to Jacob's sorry state. There was only reassurance and expectation and hope. In the dream, God described himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac. In future years, God would describe himself as the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. What amazing grace that God should identify himself so closely with a character so willful, ambitious, scheming, devious, and smooth. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fear relieved, continued John Newton in that most popular of all hymns. And that was Jacob's first experience as he awoke from the dream. He'd known fear before, I guess. Indeed, it was the fear of his brother Esau that had led him to flee in the first place, a fear to which the reassuring words of the dream were directed. But one fear was rapidly replaced by another, the fear of Esau, by the fear of the Lord. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it, as an awestruck Jacob put it in verse 16. Or in the following verse, as we read, Jacob was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And with the fear of the Lord came at last the beginning of wisdom for Jacob, the beginning of his growing up, First, he made a small shrine from the rock that had been his pillow. Next, he symbolically poured oil on it as a sign of the healing, anointing presence of God. And then he made a vow. It wasn't the most brilliant vow, we must say. It started with that conditional word, if, which is always a bad response to unconditional love. If God will be with me and look after me, then the Lord will be my God and this pillar will be God's house, and I'll give away a tenth of what I receive. It's hardly the kind of wholehearted response of Zacchaeus, say, that we read of in the Gospel. But while far from perfect, it was at least a start. It reminds me of 101 baby Christians whom I met over the years, whose faith has been genuine and excitable, but also a little conditional and self-absorbed, perhaps even bargaining with God a bit, as, God, as Jacob seems to be doing here. And that is fine, so long as our faith doesn't remain in that place of self-absorption for too long. And so Jacob's makeshift altar, he turned his pillow into a pillar and set it up in a place which he renamed Bethel, the place of encounter, the house of God. And it took its place beside two other altars that had been set up in that region, One of them in Shechem, built by Abraham, followed his encounter with God in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7. The next one in Beersheba was built by Isaac, following his encounter with God in Genesis chapter 26 and verse 25. And now this third one in Beersheba, in in, uh, Bethel, built by Jacob. 
the God of the three altars, the God of Shechem, of Beersheba, of Bethel, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, the God who keeps his promises to you, to your children, and to your children's children, and to all that are afar off. All these great themes, these great resonant themes that will continue to echo their way through the Bible are found here in the book of Genesis, right at the beginning of it. It's almost like the overture introducing some of the themes that are then going to play their way out through the history of Israel and the history of the church and right through into the history of our own times. Thousands of years later, one man who knew that overture very well, a good man extraordinarily well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures, would receive an invitation out of the blue to come and meet a man who was known in those days as Jesus of Nazareth. His first response was pretty negative, given the town's dodgy reputation. Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Living in Birmingham for six years, you got used to that kind of disparagement from those outside of the city. But on meeting Jesus, this man was immediately impressed. And then Jesus used a figure of speech that Nathaniel would remember for the rest of his life. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And although I doubt that Nathaniel immediately grasped what Jesus was talking about, that picture of Jesus himself as the ladder, the stairway from earth to heaven, very God and very man, as the old creed puts it, would become clearer and clearer the longer Nathaniel stuck around. And it's not just Nathaniel either, as every new Christian believer spends time worshipping Jesus, Christ the King, it is not long before they start using the extravagant language of Jacob in a far more personal context. Surely the Lord is in this man, and I was not aware of it. How awesome is this man? He is none other than the house of God. He is the gate of heaven, the way, the truth, the life. Friends, there's so much here about God's amazing grace, a grace that stopped willful, ambitious, scheming, devious, smooth Jacob in his tracks and called him to take his honored place within the mighty purposes of God. St. Paul often reflected on his own experience of that grace, which took place just as dramatically, just as undeservedly, on the road to Damascus. As he put it in Romans chapter 5, you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What extraordinary truths these are that even those with no apparently redeeming features can still be redeemed. What a mighty relief that, as Paul later concludes, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a truth that Jacob began to glimpse as he lay there, his head resting on a stone pillow. It's a truth that he would later experience as the prodigal finally made his way home, only to be greeted by his grace-filled brother Esau, who ran towards him, embraced him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. What a great reconciliation there would eventually be between these two boys, leading Jacob to say of Esau, to see your face 
is like seeing the face of God. I don't know what you're planning for the next few weekends, but as you continue with the story of Jacob, I'd urge you, don't miss next week's exciting episode. And say to ourselves and to the life of this church, and whether or not we share something of the character of Jacob, whether or not we are willful, ambitious, scheming, devious, and smooth, there is a challenge in this passage which is of great relevance to us both individually and together as the body of Christ in this place. Think back to that ladder, you see, that stairway stretching from earth to heaven with angels ascending and descending upon it. Think back to Jacob's awestruck words, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. And then think of a prayer that is so familiar to, it, to you that you could pray it in your sleep, though a prayer too that has just been banned from being shown in the cinemas on the build-up to Christmas. In its traditional form, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer itself recalls the ladder. As we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we are picturing angels descending upon the ladder so as to bring a touch of the kingdom of God, of his justice, of his compassion, of his healing, of his grace to the world below. And as we pray, on earth as it is in heaven, we are, as it were, bringing God our prayers and praying that they might ascend into his presence so as to bring real change in the world about us. We're metaphorically uh, inviting the angels, if you like, to take our prayers to the throne of God's grace. And if it's true that, as the psalmist puts it, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, or as they say in Essex, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. <laughs> if that is true... And if it's also true that you and I, if we're Christian believers, have the Holy Spirit living within us, and so are bringing something of the presence of Jesus wherever we go, that means that wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whatever place we find ourselves in, the Lord is in this place. The Lord is in this place. The only question is, are we aware of it? It's an insight reflected in the words of the prophet Isaiah. See, I am doing a new thing as the Lord speaks through the prophet. Now it springs up. Do you perceive it? He's doing the new thing. Do you perceive it? It's a truth famously picked up by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. And the need to pray that God himself might open our eyes to his very presence in our everyday living, to his activity around us in our homes and our communities, our schools and our workplaces, and of course in the life of the church too, remains a pressing one. It is all too easy for our lives to become very mundane, for the ladder that connects our little patch of earth with the life of the kingdom of God to be quietly ignored as our own small ambitions and visions and competencies supplant the calling to seek first the kingdom of God. Even churches can fall into that trap as we put all our energies into well-organized ministries that run like clockwork and gradually forget that unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain who build it. That is often a particular danger where, as in this diocese, there are plenty of competent people around. 
And yet every time we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven, we are being summoned to a quite different way of thinking. No longer am I alone, trying to figure out just how to make the best of my life, how to sort out that apparently intractable family problem, how to be a Christian witness in my workplace, how to bring fresh joy and vision into the life of the church. No, the Lord is here. His Spirit is with us. Or as we might put it more colloquially, don't forget the ladder. Here's a little spiritual discipline I'd recommend for the coming week. Whenever you walk into a new place this week, whether that's just returning home this morning or getting to your workplace tomorrow or going to the shops or meeting friends, imagine that you have a a ladder resting on your shoulders. And as you walk through the door of that home or office or wherever else, put that ladder up before you do anything else. As you walk into your office, put the ladder up. Recognize that the Lord is in this place and pray for his presence to surround you and to lead you through the week. There's another powerful story in the Old Testament involving the prophet Elisha. Because at one point, Elisha and his servant Gehazi find themselves surrounded by enemy forces, by the mighty army of the king of Aram. And Gehazi just can't figure out why Elisha, his master, seems so incredibly calm when their situation is so desperate. And then Elisha reveals his secret. Don't be afraid, he says to Gehazi, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And next he prays for Gehazi, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, we read, and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire, the mighty angelic army of the Lord. And so to a closing prayer, shall we bow our heads and I'll just lead us in prayer that we too might see.